0: We are in Mark chapter 3, finishing up this chapter this morning as we continue our study through this shortest of the Gospels. Most of you, and myself included, do not like nagging. I am not referring to the continuous encouragement that one might get from a spouse. The writer of Proverbs does tell us, however, that a quarrelsome woman or a quarrelsome wife is like the constant dripping on a rainy day. And perhaps you've had enough of both of those things. But I know better than to go there in a sermon. So when I talk about nagging, I am not talking about what may or may not happen in your home, I'm talking about what might be going on in your head. That is something gets stuck in our head and we can't get it out. Perhaps it is the lyrics of that song that is on perpetual replay in your mind and you are tired of it and want it to go, but it just won't leave. Or maybe it's that thought or worry that you can't seem to shake. You know deep down that the chances of whatever it is you're worried about are minimal at best, and yet you continue to worry and be anxious about what will probably never materialize. Maybe it's a question that you want the answer to. And most of the time you think you have the answer, but every once in a while it bubbles up to the surface once again, and that nagging question is on your mind and it just won't go away. Am I right? Am I wrong about this? Those questions come to our minds, but it's not like it's there every day, all day. It just comes every once in a while most of the time you don't even think about it. But occasionally that nagging old question floats up to the surface once again, and those nagging doubts return with the question. And you would like an answer to it once and for all so that you no longer have to keep thinking about it. I know many people who do not like to swim in the ocean or in a lake, though they do not mind a swimming pool. Now, why is that? Why do some people not like swimming in a lake or the ocean, but they don't mind a swimming pool. It's clearly not that they are afraid of water or they don't like swimming. It is because they cannot see what is below them. They are afraid of what is below the surface, and therefore they don't want to get into water that they cannot see through. What lies beneath the surface is sometimes scary. This morning, I want to dive below the surface And as we do that, I want to look at a couple of nagging questions that might be on your mind. Now, obviously, these may not be on every single person's mind. However, I think these questions are general enough that if they are not occasionally on your mind, they are at least on the minds of someone you know. So either this is going to help you answer the question once and for all, or you can be the one who helps someone else likewise. Now, as you might expect, these are indeed spiritual questions. So let's look below the surface. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Mark 3, verse 20. Then he, that is, of course, Jesus, then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and Mother. Two questions this morning that I believe lie below the surface in the minds of a lot of Christians. Question number one Have I committed the unpardonable sin? We are in this story back in the city of Capernaum right there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is back home. And the only home that Mark has talked about to this point is the home of Simon and Andrew and so in all likelihood we are back at their house once again. Our text begins with a strange statement about Jesus' family. But hang on to that. We are going to get back to that. We are temporarily going to skip verses 20 and 21. And we will come back to that later because they actually go with verses thirty through 31 through 35. This is a literary technique that Mark uses on occasion whereby he sandwiches one story into another. And the reason that is done is multifaceted. One, it is to heighten the sense of urgency in the story. Secondly, it is sometimes designed to show that there has been a period of time elapsed, in this case, time for his family to make the journey from Nazareth to Capernaum. But probably most important, it is designed to show that there are similarities between the two stories, and we'll notice that in a few moments. So our first question comes from the dialogue between Jesus and the scribes that is found in verses 22 through 30. These scribes have come down from Jerusalem, showing us now that the leaders in the capital city have heard of the life and ministry of Jesus and are likewise concerned. And so they come down to examine Him. And it doesn't take them very long to form a conclusion about this man. Their conclusion comes in the form of an accusation. The scribes accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul. Now that is a strange name that is confusing in part because there are multiple spellings to this particular name. Besides that, the name occurs virtually nowhere else. It does not occur outside of the Scriptures in any Jewish literature of the time and inside the Scriptures. It only occurs here and in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke's Gospel. The name probably means Lord of the house or Lord of the temple, and actually became a name probably that also meant Lord of the flies, which referred to something that was rotten or repulsive. But in the context, it certainly means a synonym to Satan. There is a correlation here Beelzebub equals Satan, who is the prince of demons. So the accusation is that Jesus is in league with Satan, and this is the source of his power. This is what, in their minds, is enabling him to do the miracles that he is doing. Now, before we get to Jesus' denial of this accusation, I think one point is important to make. The scribes do not deny the miracles of Jesus. Jesus. They can't deny these miracles because they have seen them and they have heard probably multiple reports about them. And so they are simply changing in their minds the source of His authority that allows Him to do these miracles. Now, why do I say that? I say that to remind us that miracles in and of themselves do not automatically lead to faith in and commitment to Christ. Sometimes you will hear people say, you know what, if Jesus would just give me a miracle, I would believe. If He would just answer this prayer, if He would just do this, if He would just heal me or my loved one, then I would believe. And we believe that a miracle would be the sure sign that Jesus is who He says He is, and therefore we would believe. And yet here we see men who were face-to-face with not one miracle, but no doubt multiple miracles of Jesus, and yet they do not believe. Instead, they simply decide that His miraculous powers are coming from a different source. Salvation is, is a supernatural act of God that transforms a person's heart and life. It is not the inevitable reaction to seeing the miraculous. So if you are in a state where you are refusing to believe, my guess is that were Jesus to give you that miracle, you would still find a way to continue to refuse to believe. And so the scribes accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan, and now Jesus denies them. He responds by denying that their accusation is correct, and He does this with the use of three brief parables that all make the same point. A kingdom, a house, or Satan himself, which is divided against itself, will not be able to stand. I mean, this is a leadership principle that is true for any organization or any institution, whether religious or secular. Furthermore, it is very logical and reasonable. This is not deep thinking. It is not something that you must be extremely wise to understand it makes good common sense. An organization, an institution that is divided against itself from within is going to have problems and ultimately will not be able to succeed. The kingdom, the house, the organization will crumble from within. And so it's simply an accusation that makes makes no sense. I mean, why would Satan be involved in casting himself, in this case, by his agents. I mean, his agents are indwelling others. Jesus is casting them out, and now he is accused of being in league with Satan, which makes absolutely no sense. Satan would not be casting out his own agents from those whom they have infiltrated. Now, this is followed by an illustration in verse 27. Three parables followed by an illustration, and the illustration is clear enough. If you intend to rob someone's house... And no, this is not a step-by-step guide as to how you should go about robbing someone's house, but if you were to do it, and I'm not encouraging it, if you were to do it, chances are you would try to do it when no one's home. That's when most people rob a house. They try to do it when they think no one is home. Because if you're going to rob someone's house and they are home, you must first deal with them. And so the illustration is, if you're going to someone's house to plunder their goods, And in this case, it's a strong man. Let's think of The Rock, you know, Dwayne Johnson. I'm not going to rob Dwayne Johnson's house while he's home because i got to deal with him first. The only way to plunder his goods is to bind him first and then plunder his goods. Now, what's Jesus talking about? He's clearly not giving us advice on how to rob our neighbor's house. So what's he saying? He is saying that Satan is the strong man. And if Jesus is going to come in, he must first bind Satan. And by the way, that's what he's going to do. That's what he's already beginning to do, and that's what he's ultimately going to do at Calvary. And he is the only one who can do that. He is a stronger man who is going to come in and bind the strong man, Satan. And after binding the strong man, he is able to plunder his possessions, and his possessions are those whom he has bound. That is, those whom Satan has bound in sin and sickness and ultimately trying to destroy them, Jesus is going to unbind them. He is going to loose them so that they are liberated. He has come to liberate the captives and to restore them to the image of God. So That's what that illustration is about. It is what Jesus is already doing and what he is going to continue to do in his fight against Satan and his demons. And so these scribes make an accusation against Jesus. Jesus then denies that accusation and says it makes absolutely no sense. And then thirdly, we get to the declaration by Jesus, which is what leads to the question that we are considering. The declaration is what we've come to call the unpardonable sin. And this is perhaps one of, if not the, most disturbing statement by Jesus in all of the Gospels. I mean, it is one thing for me to get mad at someone else and to say to them, I will never forgive you. And when that happens, we tend to say something like this, don't worry, she'll get over it. Just give her some time and she'll get beyond this. But when God says, I will never forgive you, that's something much more significant. For God to say, I will never forgive you, means that the wrath of God will continue to abide upon you forever. Eternal sin leads to eternal suffering and wrath. Now, let me say that this is troubling because we know God to be a forgiving God. If you didn't know this text and you just someone just pulled it out and said, this is what Jesus said you would probably say, no, no, Jesus would never say that. He is a forgiving God. And so even before we get into the unpardonable sin, I do want you to understand and not forget that God is, in fact, a God who loves to forgive. In fact, He states it in this particular text. Jesus says, before He gets to the unpardonable sin, Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven to the children of men. And we know that it's not just here. There are many other verses that say this. We are familiar with 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah famously said that though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And Jesus even says in this text that this includes any blasphemies that one might utter. So whatever else we say, don't forget that God's nature is a God of forgiveness. It's sort of like the whole story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What is it that gets the attention? It's the one tree that Jesus said, you shall not eat of this. We forget about, and they forgot about the fact that God said, all of these other trees are here for you. And yet the one tree got their attention. And so it is in this statement the one statement, the unpardonable sin, seems to get our attention, and we forget that surrounding it and many other places, God declares Himself to be a God who, who forgives, and there is no instance of Scripture of anyone coming to God in search of forgiveness and Him denying that forgiveness. So make no mistake about it, God is a forgiving God. Now again, we are trying to answer the question that lies below the surface in the minds of a lot of people, and that is, have I then committed the unpardonable sin? But before we can answer that question, we really need to back up and ask another question, and that is, what is the unpardonable sin? We have to know what it is before we can answer whether we've committed it, and there is so much confusion on this, leading to much anxiety that in most cases is anxiety that is not necessary. In fact, I will say, in all cases, it is anxiety that is not necessary. The question that I get most often on this subject is this. Pastor, is suicide the unpardonable sin? I have received that question numerous times through the years. Is suicide the unpardonable sin? Well, let me, let me help you answer that. Look at the text. Is there anything in that text remotely connected in any way to suicide? And the answer is no. I mean, there is nothing here that would even make our minds think that suicide might be the unpardonable sin. It has nothing to do with this text. Now, I understand the reason people ask that question. The reason they ask it is they think this way. Well, it's a sin that you cannot ask forgiveness for because obviously if you commit it, then you are dead. You cannot ask forgiveness. And so because you cannot ask forgiveness, maybe you're not forgiven, and therefore maybe it's the unpardonable sin. Do you hear that that's work, salvation? You see, if, if we are going to be held responsible and must pay the penalty for every sin that we do not ask forgiveness for, we are all in trouble. Because there are many sins we commit that we don't even recognize are sins. There are many sins we commit that we forget to ask forgiveness for. Yes, we understand that the Bible says we are to ask forgiveness. We know that we are to do that because God wants us to confess and agree with him that that sin is a sin. But that doesn't mean that if we forget one or we don't name it by name that we are now unforgiven. So suicide is not the unpardonable sin. And if you are dealing with that because somebody in your family has done that and you still bear the pain of that, that may not make the pain go away, but it ought to make the anxiety go away of whether or not it is the unpardonable sin because it is clearly not. A second misunderstanding is to say that unforgiveness is the unpardonable sin. This was the mistake made recently on our WOW Ladies Retreat by the speaker. And yes, I did ask permission to deal with this specifically. The speaker at that event took this position and said that if you refuse to forgive someone else of their sins toward you, then you have indeed committed the unpardonable sin. Now, the Bible is clear that if we persist in unforgiveness, it is a sign that we may not be forgiven. That is... When we are forgiven by Christ of our great sin against God, and we understand that, it ought to lead us to be more forgiving to others because we know that God has forgiven us of so much, therefore we willingly and readily forgive others of such lesser sins against us. And so we understand that the Bible makes that correlation. But it nowhere says that unforgiveness is the unpardonable sin. Unforgiveness is not right and it is a sin, but it certainly can be repented of and you can find forgiveness for it. And I'm grateful that many of our ladies at the retreat recognized that this was an error and they talked about it among themselves and actually talked about it with the speaker and so I applaud you for recognizing false doctrine and dealing with it appropriately. Getting closer to the context of this passage, the third option is saying something negative against the Lord. The text certainly talks about blasphemy, and we know that blasphemy is being irreverent or defiant toward God. And so there are some who wrestle with this idea that maybe in the past they said some word in a moment of anger, in a fit of rage, they said something about God, they didn't really mean it then, they certainly don't mean it now, and yet they have that nagging sense that because I made that statement 20 years ago or five years ago that I've committed the unpardonable sin and God in Christ will never forgive me. And while it is a serious thing, to say something against God, so serious, in fact, that the Jews refused to speak the name of God for fear that they might do it irreverently. That does not mean that it is the unpardonable sin. Again, Jesus says in this text, whatever blasphemies they utter will be forgiven. Paul acknowledged himself to be a former blasphemer, and yet, of course, we know that he was forgiven. So it is abundantly clear that the unpardonable sin has something to do with the Holy Spirit. Let's not rip this out of its context and point our finger at this sin or that and say that's the unpardonable sin. Let's deal with it in its context. And in its context, it clearly has something to do with the Holy Spirit. The scribes are attributing the work of Jesus to being demon-possessed. When in fact, he is not demon-possessed, as we well know, he is possessed by the Holy Spirit of God, something we saw at his baptism, and something that remains. We know that it is the Holy Spirit's role to convict us of sin, to lead us to understand the gospel, to open our eyes to the light of the glories of the gospel, and take us out of darkness and into that light, to repent and believe. And so it is the Holy Spirit's job to enlighten our minds But if we reject that, and if we then attribute the work of the Holy Spirit in striving to lead us out of that instead to the work of the enemy, then there is no other means of salvation. This is very important. The language and the tense in this text make it very clear that this is not a one-time act. This is an ongoing and persistent, habitual action and attitude. Thus, it is repeated denials. Is repeating, repeatedly denying the Holy Spirit's role, and therefore our hearts become hardened. And at some point, we no longer become moved by the Spirit of God, and therefore there is no option for salvation. Let me give you a definition. This is not my definition. It's a quote. The unpardonable sin is to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies to these truths in your heart. Now, I know you didn't get all that. It is knowingly, that is, this is not a sin we commit by accident, it is willingly, that is, we do it on purpose. And persistently, it is repeated. This is not a one time act. Attributing to the Spirit, uh, attributing to Satan, the works of God done by Jesus through the Spirit. So the unpardonable sin is something that is done with full knowledge, not by accident. It is an ongoing disposition of the heart that resists the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It is a verbal act that attributes the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, and it is willful rejection of the grace of Jesus that is rooted in unbelief, which means two things. Number one, a believer. A genuine believer, and I say genuine because there is the opportunity or there is the option that a professing believer is not a genuine believer, something we'll talk about in a moment. A genuine believer cannot commit the unpardonable sin. So if you're here this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ... There is no reason for you to be anxious over the possibility that you may have committed the unpardonable sin because it is not possible for a believer to do this. Secondly, anyone who is anxious or worried that you may have committed the unpardonable sin have not because this is a sin that those who commit it are not the least bit concerned about it because they are doing so deliberately and willfully. So if you're a believer, you can't commit it. If you're worried that you have committed it, you haven't committed it. Which is why I said earlier, I think I can relieve all of the anxiety over this question. Because anybody who is anxious over whether they've committed the unpardonable sin has not committed the unpardonable sin. So rightly understood, question number one, have I committed the unpardonable sin? The answer for all of us is no. Now let's move to our second question am I part of God's family? This question is a little bit different in that we think we know the answer to this one. You may not have known the answer to the first one, but this one we think we know the answer to, and yet it is possible that we are wrong. If we go back to the beginning of our Scripture today, we are met with the arrival of Jesus' family at this home in Capernaum. And this is an odd encounter. It is the Mark is the only one, verses 20 and 21, Mark is the only one who records this. Now, we know that his family consisted of his mother Mary. There is no mention of Joseph after the birth narrative, so most scholars believe that somewhere along the way, Joseph has passed away. And then in verse 31, it tells us that his family entourage includes his brothers as well. So we don't know how many people are there, but we know that his mother and some brothers are. Now, Catholic theologians who hold to the perpetual virginity of Jesus, or I'm sorry, the perpetual virginity of Mary, strike that out. Do not not quote that anywhere. Perpetual virginity of Mary, Uh, Catholic theologians who hold to that, we'll have to cut that out of the CD as well. I don't want anyone to hear me say that. Um, They would conclude that these are cousins or stepbrothers, but that is, of course, not our Conclusion, we believe that Jesus did have half brothers from the fruit of the union of Joseph and Mary, Jesus being the half because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mark lists four brothers of Jesus in chapter 6, and he tells us that there were sisters as well. So again, though, though we don't know the total number of people who have come to Capernaum, we know that it's at least, at least Mary and some of his brothers. But what is interesting or odd is what they've come to do. Mark says they have come to seize Jesus. And this is a strong word used elsewhere to refer to binding Jesus to deprive him of his freedom. And the assumption is that they want to seize him and take him back to Nazareth. And the reason is that they have concluded look again at verse 21 he is out of his mind. Jesus is crazy. He is a fanatic. He is a lunatic. Now remember, I said that this literary device of sandwiching one story in the midst of another is in part to show that the stories have some similarities. Well, here the similarity is that even his immediate family not only do not believe him, But at this point, they are actively opposed to him. Even as the scribes have come down to Jerusalem to examine Jesus and try to hinder his ministry, his own family at this point is doing the exact same thing. They are trying to derail his ministry. John makes it very clear in his gospel. He says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, we know that later on they do. In fact, James becomes the leader of the church In Jerusalem. So, this is what we might call today an intervention. They have decided together, they've gotten together and said, There is something wrong with your brother. We need to do something about this. Perhaps he's bringing shame on the family, as we've talked on Sunday nights about that culture where shame and honor was very important. So, perhaps all of this is bringing shame on his family, and they've decided it is time to do something about it, and they have come to seize him. Now, you will probably remember. Probably not actually, but last summer, we looked at the book of Zechariah. And in the book of Zechariah in chapter 13, there is a part of that prophecy that says there is coming a time when the Israelites will become so concerned about purity that even if a son prophesies falsely, his parents will seize him and stone him because such will be their love for purity and true doctrine. And so maybe that's what Mary and his brothers are striving for here, though, of course, I'm not suggesting that they intended to kill him. So when the story picks up in verse 31, the family is outside trying to get to Jesus while the crowd is inside listening to Jesus. So word is passed to Jesus that his family wants to speak to him. And we would certainly expect that Jesus is going to stop his teaching and he is going to go outside and talk to his mother or he is going to pave the way for his mother to come in and speak to him directly. But instead, he looks around at those who are in the house listening to him, which certainly includes the 12 apostles, and he redefines family. Remember, the question is, am I part of God's family? And now Jesus is about to redefine family. Now, I do not use that phrase the way in which it is used in our culture today. You know full well that family is being redefined in our culture. No longer is the the traditional family, as we used to call it, the only option. ABC's Modern Family that's been on for a decade now has taught us, unless you've not watched it, which is great, you probably shouldn't, it has taught us that there are multiple options for what a real family is. Jesus is not redefining family in that way. That is not what I'm saying. But he's redefining family in a spiritual sense. He's saying no longer is family defined by physical relations. It is not a matter of birth. It is a matter of rebirth. It is not a matter of physical descent. It is a matter of spiritual relationship just like Jews in the Old Testament. They believed that they were right with God because they were descendants of Abraham. And Jesus endeavored to teach them that that was not what it meant to have a relationship with God. Just because you were born as a descendant of Abraham did not mean that you were right with God. Likewise, just because we are born into a Christian family or our grandfather was a pastor or we were brought to church when we were little, that does not mean that we are part of God's family. So who is part of God's family? Well, some people would say that we all are. Everybody's a child of God. Friends, that's universalism, and that is not the Bible. Universalism says that somehow, way, eventually everybody will be saved because we're all part of God's family, but that's not biblical. Many of us might say, well, I know the answer to that one. Who is part of God's family? I know the answer. It is those who have prayed the prayer and invited Jesus into their heart. Well, let's see if that's what Jesus says here. And I'll give you a clue. That's not what he says. He says, first of all, he he looked around at those who were with him. So though it's not explicit here, the picture is clear. Who's part of God's family? Those who want to be with Jesus. You remember last... Last week, we talked about the calling of the 12 apostles, and I gave you the threefold charge that they were given, and the first charge was not to go preach. The first charge was that they were to be with Jesus, and they weren't ready to preach until they had been with Jesus, and that's the same thing we see here. He's looking around at those around him, and the imagery is striking here because the ones around him are his apostles, while his family, his physical descendants, are still outside, unable to get into the house. So, if we have no desire to regularly spend time with Jesus, what makes us think we're part of God's family? What makes us think that we are a true disciple? The second element he states very clearly. Verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here is the redefinition of family. He who does the will of God. Family members obey the Father, not perfectly, not always, but regularly. Now, I realize that sounds like work salvation. And we have become so afraid of work salvation that we lean so far in the opposite extreme. And that's why your initial answer might have been those who prayed a prayer, or those who invited Jesus into their heart, or those who confessed one time that Jesus is Lord. But if that is the sum total of family membership, why doesn't Jesus say that here? Can I just admit that there is a huge misunderstanding in the southern evangelical culture and in the southern evangelical church about the nature of genuine salvation? Yes, it is faith that ushers us into the family. Don't misunderstand me, but the faith that ushers us into the family is a faith that bears fruit or proves itself to be genuine faith by works. That is why Jesus says here that the one who does the will of God is part of my family, not because it's work salvation, but because faith that brings you into the family is faith that works. Now, I know, I know I'm not going to change opinion with one sermon, but I'm really tired of hearing, I prayed a prayer when I was 10, and that's the extent of their spiritual journey. That they think because they uttered a few words 50 years ago, that they're right with God. When they've demonstrated no inclination in all of those years to be with Jesus, nor any inclination to be obedient to the will of God. And that's what Jesus says here. That's what the family is about. And that's what the rest of the New Testament teaches as well. So am I in God's family? Well, for this question, I cannot answer it for you. The first question I answered for all of us and said, No, we have not committed the unpardonable sin. But for this question, I cannot answer it for you. You must answer it for yourself with the help of the Holy Spirit as you examine your heart and life. I am not trying to get you to doubt your salvation unless your salvation is not genuine, and then that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Now, I know the reaction of Jesus might seem like disrespectful to his mother. But in reality, he's using the opportunity to teach us what it means to be a part of his family. And elsewhere, he said, you have to hate your physical family to be part of his spiritual family. Now, that's an even stronger statement. And that doesn't mean that we must literally hate our parents or our siblings. What he's saying there is that when we, by faith, come to love God, that love is so strong That in comparison, any other kind of love looks like hate. That we love God so much that love for parents or love for children or love for spouse looks like hate in comparison. Now, I know we've been talking about being part of God's family or what we might call the universal church. But the Bible also talks about a local church family. That is the the local family, the body of Christ that you and I ought to be a part of. And most of you are, most of you are a member of Beaver Dam, but perhaps there are some here this morning who are not a member of a of a church. You've been visiting this church for a while and maybe it's time for you to take that step and join this church. Now you have to be a believer first. That's what we call regenerate church membership. You have to be saved in order to be part of the church because the church is a picture of the family of God and you have to be a Christian to be in the family. But if you are already saved, you need to be part of a local body of believers where you can grow with other Christians and where you can help other Christians grow. And so in just a few moments as we stand and sing, that's what we're inviting you to do. We're inviting you to join this body of believers and unite with us. Or we're inviting you to come forward and talk to one of the ministers if you do not know Christ. We can do it right down front or we can hang around afterwards and we can talk to you about what it means to become part of God's family. That's why we're here and that's what we would love to do for you. So let's stand and sing and you respond as God may be leading.